Well, this morning, we're going to continue through our study through the Gospel of John by uh, spending time in verses 19 through 34 of chapter 1. But let me back up first. We've actually already encountered these lines, but we actually begin... Uh, What we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk a little bit more about John the Baptist. And we're first introduced to John the Baptist, who is a different John than the author of the Gospel of John. Uh, He's a different figure entirely. And we're first introduced to him in verse 6. So let me back up and start there. In verses 6 through 9, it says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then in verse 19, we continue. And this is the testimony of John, that being John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him again, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, quoting here from Isaiah 40, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And we'll stop right there for this morning. There's plenty in here to unpack and think about during our time together. And in fact, this is not the first time I have preached about John the Baptist from this pulpit here. Uh, In fact, the very first message I ever gave at State Road Advent Christian Church was during a sermon series that the guys were giving on the Gospel of Mark. And when I came to Candidate, you might remember well over two years ago now, the passage of Scripture that they gave me to preach on was on a parallel passage to this one in the Gospel of Mark, where it talked about John the Baptist coming as the voice, crying in the wilderness and making straight the way of the Lord. 
And so I have spoken on this topic before, and I think if I remembered right, I didn't actually go back and revisit that message this week, but if I remember correctly, I spoke there mostly about the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. And uh, some of that is contained here in this passage as well this morning, but where we're going to spend most of our time on, where I felt led of the Lord to kind of break it down this week, was in verses 19 through 23, this interesting back and forth between John the Baptist and this delegation from Jerusalem who come out to ask him, who are you? There is more than a little evidence within the Bible that John the Baptist was a man who held a much greater place in the minds of his contemporaries than he does in our minds today. It's striking to me, for example, that in his gospel account, John goes to such extreme lengths, really repetitive language, very strong language, to make explicit and clear that John the Baptist was not as great as Jesus. John says of John the Baptist, he was not the light. And my first reaction is, of course he wasn't. (laughs) I mean, most of what the Bible tells us about John the Baptist is him saying that he's not as great as Jesus. But the very fact that he and the gospel writers felt it necessary to make that point explicit points us to the fact that John the Baptist was a figure who loomed much larger in the imaginations of the people of his time than he does in ours today. Even Jesus said of John the Baptist, I tell you, among those born of women, none of None is greater than John. He was held in such high esteem that many thought he might plausibly be even the Messiah. Herod, we are told, had been afraid to execute John the Baptist because he was so universally beloved by the people. And even after John the Baptist was eventually executed by Herod, And Herod heard about Jesus and all the amazing things he was doing and saying. His first reaction to Jesus and his ministry was not, here's somebody who's greater than John the Baptist. Rather, we're told in the Bible that Herod actually thought this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. In Acts 19, we get a hint that even much later, Years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there were still many people, perhaps, who considered themselves followers of John the Baptist rather than Jesus. In Acts 19, verses 3 through 4, we read these words, And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So there, Paul is speaking to a group of people who considered themselves still followers of John the Baptist and not true Christians. They were only partially formed in an understanding of what God was up to. And so perhaps as John is writing his gospel account of Jesus, he is aware, maybe even personally aware, of people who consider themselves still hangers on to John the Baptist's movement. So he begins his gospel by making it explicit and clear who John the Baptist was in relation to Jesus. 
And that's why he places such strong and emphatic emphasis, perhaps, on the relative importance of these two men. And this is interesting, given that John, not John, uh, that this is interesting that John probably began his career, if you want to call it that. I don't know a, a better word, but he probably started out as a disciple of John the Baptist and not Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist had a group of disciples. We were in, introduced to them a number of times in the Bible. And John is probably among those who were John the Baptist's disciples early on. But he and Andrew, uh, probably early on in the career, in the ministry of Jesus, they said, we're going to go with this guy. And John the Baptist didn't stop them. Because John the Baptist, of course, um, understood who he was in relationship to Jesus. So John knew both of these men very well, John the Baptist and Jesus. And as a former disciple of John the Baptist, he was uniquely well-positioned to relate the encounter described in our passage for this morning. I think it's possible, maybe even likely, that John, among the disciples, among the New Testament writers, was probably present, present for this exchange between John the Baptist and this delegation from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. In verse 19, I'm going to read it again. This is interesting to me. It says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The ministry of John the Baptist to the religious leaders in Jerusalem was one that defied classification. He didn't seem to fit in any of their preconceived boxes. And here I'm not even talking about what the Bible tells us about John the Baptist, which is that he is a guy who apparently dressed in camel's hair, which would be the equivalent, perhaps, as if you walked around dressed in burlap. It's a very uncomfortable kind of garment. So he had an outlandish way of dressing. He had an outlandish diet. The Bible says he ate honey and locusts, which would be, I imagine, like putting pine needles on a whoopie pie. I, don't, <laughs> I mean, I like honey, but locusts? He also had a strange mode of living. He was clearly uh, some kind of a religious leader, but again, he defied easy classification to the people in Jerusalem, these religious leaders. He wasn't one of the scribes and Pharisees. He was not a member of the priesthood. He was just kind of rogue. He was out there doing his own thing. He wasn't a political leader, but he had a vast and ever-growing influence and a following. He wasn't a learned scholar. He didn't come from any of their schools, but nonetheless, he was instructing the masses. And all of this was maybe concerning to them. So eventually, after watching from afar, they decided we got to send some guys and actually talk to John the Baptist. 
ask him who exactly he is. So they did. They sent this delegation of priests and Levites, and they ask a question of him, which is all at once simple and very profound. Who are you? Who are you? It's interesting, especially in the midst of our own culture today, is it not? This is an interesting question. Our culture is very concerned with questions about identity. In the America of 2020, who are you is a loaded kind of question. And I wondered as I was writing my message this week how I would answer this question. If somebody came to me and said, who are you? Who are you? How would I answer it? How would you? I'll come back to that in a minute. But first, I think the reason why this delegation is asking this question in the first place is because they want clarity about exactly what kind of authority John was claiming by going around, baptizing people, doing the things he was doing, teaching as he was. What kind of authority are you claiming to have? Who are you in your own mind? And they want to understand, I think, also to whom he was accountable. Who's his boss? Who is backing him? Who has vested him with the authority that he seems to claim to be having? And we already know the answer to that question, if we had been paying attention. Back in John 1.6, our very first introduction to John begins with these words, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The word apostle that we encounter in our Bibles means one who is sent. John here has been sent by God. There was a man sent from God. And the idea when the Bible talks about somebody who has been sent from another person or another body of people or from God is that the one who is sent is vested with the authority and the message of the one who sent them. That's the idea. When ambassadors, when the U.S. ambassador goes into a meeting with a foreign head of state, it's not under their own personal authority that they go into that meeting. And it's not with their own ideas and their own message, their own uh, understanding that they take with them. When, an, when the U.S. ambassador goes into a meeting with a foreign head of state, they go vested with the authority of the United States president, with our government. And they go there to represent the interest, to promote the message and the vision of that president. They are not independent agents. That's not what an ambassador, that's not one who has been sent, an apostle. That's not what John the Baptist was. John the Baptist had been sent from God. And as such, he came vested with the authority of God and with his message. In this, John the Baptist really is the last in the line of those great Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist is akin to the prophet Isaiah or Elijah or Elisha. These guys who served as God's spokesperson to the people. And in the Old Testament, a prophet of the Old Testament, which is an office that no longer exists in the church, they really came with a unique amount of authority. And they spoke with authority because they were speaking 
They were God's mouthpiece, as it were. And John the Baptist is that same kind of a guy. So we've already been informed about the source of John's authority and to whom he is accountable, but all of that remains an open question in the minds of these men who themselves have been sent by a higher power to whom they must give an account in Jerusalem. It's very interesting, this delegation that has come from Jerusalem, they are apostles of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They've been sent with certain questions to ask. They have the authority of that body backing them and asking these questions. So there's a certain amount of gravity when they ask these questions and they make the statements that they do. And they're accountable to that group for what they discover. And that their concern has primarily to do with where John gets his authority from, I think becomes clear in verse 25. So in other words, I don't think they're just coming to John the Baptist with uh, a question born out of just interest. They aren't just kind of curious or even excited to know. I think really at the heart of this question is a concern about John the Baptist's authority. These are the existing recognized authority in matters of religion coming to John the Baptist to ask, by who are you? They are really asking, by what authority do you do these things, I think. And that becomes clear in verse 25, where it says, then why are you back? So after he goes through this list and says, I'm, are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Then they ask this, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. In other words, why are you doing these things? You don't have the authority to act as you are. This follow-up question is really, I think, a thinly veiled accusation. They are saying that he's operating outside of any recognized authority, outside of accountability. He's gone rogue. And it now seems possibly that when they ask who you are, what they really meant was just who do you think you are? That's really, that's really I think, the spirit of the question. Maybe they started with a, a more gentle who are you, but in this question they're saying who do you think you are? Which, by the way, they would also pose this exact same question to Jesus on two separate occasions. In Mark 11, 28, and John 8, 25, in Mark 11, they're going to say, by what authority do you do what you're doing? And in John 8, they're going to ask him directly, who are you? Who do you think you are? What are you exactly claiming? But I want to back up for just a second and take a look at it from this example, from this perspective. The very fact that they came to John with this question is testimony to how successful his movement had become. How many followers he was gaining. And perhaps how manifestly obvious it was that God was working through this man. Again, I think John the Baptist was a much bigger figure in his day than we understand him to be perhaps today. After all, I mean, he didn't write any of the books in our New Testament Again, most of the content in the Bible about John the Baptist is stating that he is no great thing compared to Jesus. 
And so we might walk away from John the Baptist just kind of feeling like he's a bit of a bit player in the gospel accounts. And maybe in the grand scheme of things, he was. But at the time, there was a strong sense in Israel at that time that John the Baptist was the big thing happening. And the very fact that they come to him with this question, who are you, is proof that anything was possible. Uh, that, that they maybe even entertained the possibility that he was these great figures. Who are you? What a question. And then we also see in his answer proof of his significant following and influence at that time. Because when they ask him, who are you, he first defines himself negatively by explaining who he wasn't. He says, I'm not the Christ. And this answer is once again indicative of just how powerful and compelling he was. You have to be, I think, over the top high in the minds of people to answer a question like this in this way and not have it come off as obnoxiously pretentious or cringeworthy. I mean, just imagine if you came to me and said, Josh Tate, who do you think you are? And I said, well, I'm not the son of God, if that's what you're thinking. (laughs) You guys would all say, no, we weren't thinking that. That's ridiculous. But the fact is, because he says, I'm not the Christ, and it's not pretentious. It's not weird that he would deny this. It's not cringeworthy. It's because I think many people at the time were openly wondering, is that who John the Baptist is? We haven't seen this kind of power, this kind of authority, this kind of enthusiasm and excitement and a following and influence in a leader ever. And here he is. This is a new thing happening in Israel. Maybe he's the guy. And it's not strange to him or to the other people there that they might be thinking this. But by their answer, they then follow up with, well, what then? If you're not the Christ, what then? Are you Elijah? This shows that they they have at least entertained the possibility that he was the Messiah. And they have obviously considered other possibilities as well. But after denying he was the Christ, they ask, what are you, Elijah? And this is a reference to a a passage in Malachi, Malachi 4, 5 through 6, uh, that talks about how they had a belief that Elijah was believed to return before the arrival of the Messiah. John the Baptist had this sort of ascetic lifestyle, and the way his personal affect his way of teaching, his lifestyle, all of it sort of resembled and was in line with what the Bible presents about Elijah. And so maybe if he's not the Messiah, maybe this is the promised return of Elijah. But John the Baptist answers again that he is not Elijah. You've got me wrong. So they say, are you the prophet? And this is probably a reference to a somewhat obscure passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 18, where it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. But once again, John the Baptist answers, No, I'm not him either. I'm not 
the Messiah. I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. So then they said, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, up to this point, John has been defining himself negatively according to who he wasn't. But now he answers affirmatively by quoting Isaiah 40. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So, John the Baptist is saying that he was the last in that great line of Old Testament prophets. He is the final prophet that comes crying among God's people. Well, the final prophet compared to Jesus. Jesus actually would be the final prophet. He was a witness to herald, proclaim, and substantiate the, miracles of, the miracle of Jesus' coming into the world as the light of men. He came preparing of the way of the Lord, not in the sense that Jesus needed like a lead blocker to make things easier or somehow more optimal for him to work, but rather he came to prepare the hearts of men for their encounter with Jesus. Jesus is God. He doesn't need help from a man. John the Baptist didn't prepare the way of the Lord in that sense. He prepared men to put them in the best possible position to, re to receive Jesus for who he was. He came to put men in the right frame of mind to see their need for a Savior. So he called them to repentance. He talked about sin he encouraged them to view themselves as somebody in need of a perfectly righteous Savior. That's the ministry of John the Baptist, was to put people in the right frame of mind for their encounter with Jesus when he came. But here's what I want us to see this morning. John knew who he was not, but more importantly, when asked, he knew who he was. And I think that defining oneself negatively according to what we are not is good to a certain point. But in order to live a life that promotes things, we must be able to define ourselves positively according to who we are. I'll come back to that in a moment. But first, I just want to ask you, fellow Christian, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are this morning? You are called and gifted. You are loved. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You are accepted. You are in the world, but you are not of it. You are a pilgrim and a sojourner, making your way home to God. You are a child of that God. You are Jesus' friend. You are fishers of men and laborers in the harvest of souls. You are a joint heir with Jesus, sharing his inheritance with him. You are united with God and one spirit with him. You are a temple of God. His spirit and his life lives in you. You are a member of Christ's body. You are redeemed and forgiven. You are complete in Jesus Christ. You are free from condemnation. You are a new creation because you are in Christ. You are chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. 
You are established, anointed, and sealed by God. You have a spirit within you, not a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. You are a worker for the gospel. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ. You have direct access to God through prayer. You are chosen to bear fruit. You are one of God's living stones, being built up in Christ as a spiritual house. All of God's promises belong to you, and you are sent. You're an ambassador for Christ. Just as Jesus was sent into the world, so too have you been sent. Last week, we talked a lot about that portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that the church is salt and light. And I want to finish this morning with this thought. I talked just a minute ago about how John the Baptist was able to define himself negatively according to who he was not. And he was also able to say positively who he was. And both of those are involved in our lives when we define ourselves. If you ask me, Josh Tate, who you are, who are you, I might answer that in a million different ways. Uh, When my kids were really little, one of my kids uh, had this habit, and Sarah and I used to laugh. We thought it was so funny, because if if I went to my other children and I said to two different um, foods, do you want the red one or the blue one? My other kids, all four of the other kids, would say, I want that one. And they would take the one that they wanted. But we have one child, and I won't say who it was, <laughs> but he was very unique. Every time we said, do you want this one or that one? Every time. And we asked him hundreds of times because we thought it was so funny. He would say, I don't want that one. <laughs> that was just his personality. Uh, If you asked him, do you want to sit in this chair or this one? He would say, I don't want to sit in that one. And that's how we knew the one he wanted. All the other kids would say positively what they wanted. But it seems to me that if you ask me, who are you, Josh Tate? I might answer that any number of ways. I might say, I'm a man. Which would uh, be a positive statement about who I was. But I could also say, I'm not a woman. Or I could say, I'm an American. But you might ask me, who are you? And I might say, I'm not Canadian. Uh, I'm not good at sports. I'm not this, I'm not that. I might define myself negatively as well as positively. And when we come to the Bible, the same is true, I think, for Christians and the church. We need to be able to define ourselves negatively according to what we're not, as well as positively. Both of these are actually important and good. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls the church to be both salt and light. And here we see these two things held together. The salt is really a definition, is really how the church defines itself in opposition to the world. And light is how we define ourselves positively for what we're going to promote. Salt in its day was a valuable preservative. It slowed decay by preventing the growth of bacteria. The truth is that the natural tendency of this fallen world is not toward greater righteousness. As surely as gravity will bring an object crashing back down to earth, 
Our fallen natures are always inclined toward greater and greater wickedness. No, no parent has ever had to teach their children to lie. Unfortunately, given our sin natures, uh, lying comes quite naturally to children all on its own. Parents have to teach their children to be honest. So by describing the church as the salt of the earth, Jesus is saying that in a fallen world, society will always trend toward deeper levels of evil. But it is the, the, it is the church, the salt, that slows societal decay. And God willing has the ability to preserve a society from, a, from destroying itself. By describing the church as the salt of the earth, he is really saying, I think in part, that the church is like the conscience of a culture. We exist in part to state our opposition to wickedness. Vance Havner, the great preacher, he once said, Christians are the salt of the earth. We must be willing to be rubbed into the carcass of an unregenerate society. Salt must be brought into close contact with whatever it is meant to affect if it is to do any good. So as salt of the earth, we are called to engage the society that we live in, to live a life of integrity, and to speak up in opposition to what is evil. We are to define ourselves negatively as existing in opposition to certain things, which isn't exactly what John the Baptist did. He was not in opposition to the Messiah, of course not, but he knew that he wasn't the Messiah, and so perhaps by saying I'm not the Messiah, he is perhaps stating I am in opposition to pride. I am in opposition to a grasping desire to seize the place of the Messiah. But more than that, we're, we're, we're not just salt. The church is not just the salt of the earth. We're also the light of the world. And we talked about this last week at length, how really we're not the light of the world. We are vessels that carry the light of the world. Jesus, uh, by living within us through the Holy Spirit, it is Jesus who shines forth from the light, uh, from the life of a Christian. Just as a, a kerosene lamp, once lit, uh, shines forth the light from within. It's illuminated from within and, and, and throws light. And that's the way a Christian is too. So first, Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, and then he says you're the light of the world. And light is different in its meaning here than salt because light promotes growth. If salt exercises the negative function of slowing decay and warns the dis disciples of the danger of compromising and conforming with the world, then the light speaks, of, speaks positively of what we love and promote as followers of Jesus. You see, the church is not just opposed to things. We're not just a group of people who get together and say that we hate what's going on out there. That's not the totality of who we are. I think sometimes that's how the, peop the impression people get about the church, that we're just uh, up, up in arms all the time, that we're upset about trends in the culture. We're just upset about what's going on all the time. We just want things to be different. And maybe that's true to a certain extent. We are opposed to much that is going on in the midst of our culture today. That's true. There's no walking away from that. 
But if that's the only impression we ever give, we are only living out half of our identity. We're just John saying, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. But never getting around to saying, I am, this is who I am. And that's, what's, that's what light is, is represented, representing here. So as Christians, we're not just opposed to what we see happening in the culture. We are excitedly demonstrating by our lives and our homes a more excellent way. We're excited about living uh, in, in pursuit of wonderful things that we love, not just opposition to things that we don't. If the kerosene of what we know and feel never bursts into the flame of good works, then people are deprived the benefit of the light that was entrusted to us. And the person who is content to look after their own soul, but is afraid to interfere or speak into the wickedness around them is neither salt nor light. You see, if in closing, the thing I want us to see about John the Baptist so badly, you look at John the Baptist and what little information we have about him is that he was a singularly unique man. Uh, He was unflinching in pursuit of his calling. He was courageous. It's interesting to me that... um, Later, they will come to Jesus and they will say, by what authority do you do the things you're doing? And he will say, I will answer your question if you'll answer my question. They say, okay. He says, then tell me this. The John the Baptist, that, all those baptisms, was that from heaven or was that of men? And the Pharisees kind of huddle together and they say, you know, if we say it's from heaven, Jesus is gonna say, then why didn't you do what he said? But if we say it's from men, then everybody's going to hate us because they love John the Baptist so much. So they come back to Jesus, and with their tail tucked between their legs, they say, we don't know. (laughs) And And then Jesus says, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do the things I'm doing. And what I want us to see here is this. These Pharisees, were very concerned about the opinions of others, and this kept them from answering honestly. If they had answered honestly, they would have said, we think it's, a, we think it's from men. We think it's a bunch of hocus-pocus. In, in fact, they, they say, it, when they're huddling together, at least as the gospel account tells us, that they, they said, we don't want to say it's because of men because of the people will hate that we say that. Not, not out of conviction. And what's interesting to me is that John the Baptist didn't outwardly, or as far as we're informed from the Bible, care much about what other people thought of him in his ministry, his mode of living, his dress, what he ate, the message that he gave. When Herod was involved in an un, un, uh, immoral relationship with his brother's wife, John the Baptist wasn't quiet about that. Apparently, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were. They didn't suffer the same fate as John the Baptist, but he was ultimately executed because he took a stand for righteousness. John the Baptist, everything about him, you look at this man's life, you look at the way he promoted truth, you look at the way that he boldly, unflinchingly again, uh, lived the truth that he knew, and all of this is born from a place where he understood who he was. 
He operated from a place where he understood who he was to God. Not only who he wasn't, but who he was. When they came to him and said, are you the Christ? He says, no, I'm not. (laughs) I'm not all that in a bag of chips, but I'll tell you, there is a Christ coming, and my job is to point people to him. You see, he understood who he was, who God was, and who he was in relationship to God. And it is from this place of deep understanding of who he was that he operated with power. And, And I, at least as a follower of Jesus myself, was really taken aback this week by the question, who are you? And, and within, within matters of my faith, am I operating from a place of just opposition to things or am I operating from a place positively of saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm excited about, this is what I'm promoting? And both are important. Both are f- fully part of who we are. We should be opposed to things. John the Baptist was opposed to things. He cried, repent. Repent. His ministry was really based around the idea of opposition to wickedness. And he was unflinching in that. Uh, Even when it cost him great personal injury, cost him his life when he was imprisoned and executed for taking a stand against wickedness. But he was more than just an opponent. He was more than just opposed. He was a promoter of good things. He was excitedly, visibly Uh, with words promoting things that were beautiful and right and good. And that's where I want us to end this morning. If we're going to look to John the Baptist, I think if John the Baptist knew that we spent a Sunday morning talking about him and not Jesus, he would have been really troubled by that. (laughs) John, John the Baptist, if we know anything about him from the Bible, was he did not want to be center stage. Uh, He was just the announcer. He's the guy who says, and here's Jesus. That's his job. And so if he knew that we were going to sit here and study him for a morning, my guess is he would say, oh, you wasted a morning. You should have been spending this morning talking about Jesus and the gospel. However, I do think that John the Baptist, in his humility, in his understanding of who he was, is is a... a challenging example to us as followers of Jesus also. Ultimately, John the Baptist is not higher than us on the org chart. He's one of us. We are all followers of Jesus. We are all people who have been, who define ourselves in connection to that great person, Jesus. But John the Baptist does set for us a very compelling, challenging example of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, to put Jesus in his place as first, and to live out of that identity in a bold way, a compelling way, a way that promotes good things and that makes a difference. So I challenge you this week uh, to get alone with your Bibles, get alone with your God, pray, talk to God, say, Who am I, Lord? I know what I'm against. (laughs) I know some things I'm for. John the Baptist had this idea of who he was in, in the great scheme of the kingdom. He knew his calling. He knew his giftedness. And he knew who he wasn't. He knew he wasn't the Messiah. He knew he wasn't Elijah. But he found joy in the pursuit of his calling when he understood it. 
And maybe you're in that place today. Maybe you're just somebody who is wrestling with the Lord to figure out exactly who you are. God, I love you. I'm on fire for the cause. I love your church. I want to make a difference. But God, maybe I sometimes wrestle with understanding exactly how I fit, exactly what my place is in the church and in the kingdom cause. And that's a wonderful conversation to have with God. And I invite you to have that conversation with God this week. Let me close now in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example of John the Baptist. I thank you for his humility. And God, we, like John the Baptist, are grateful most of all for Jesus. We're grateful for John the Baptist because he points us to the light, because he helps the light shine. And God, we thank you for that. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to make Jesus visible this week also. Father, I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone who has been a part of this time as we opened your word together and who is wrestling with you about questions of who exactly they are in the church, in the cause, Father, as we read your Bible, you say many things about who we are. But God, one of the great joys is awakening to a sense of your calling on our lives. And Father, if that person is listening and a part of this study right now, Father, I pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, make your will in their lives known. God, I pray that they would live a yielded, obedient life in those things you have made explicitly clear. And then as a result, God, they would be drawn into a question about these other things, your will and how you're leading them. And Father, I pray, Lord, that all of us would be able to answer the question positively, not just negatively. Father, that we are followers of Jesus, that we love the truth, that we are actively, excitedly, out loud, in visible ways, living the truth that we know, promoting it with excitement and, sin and sincerity. Father, help us to make a difference this week for your kingdom. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.